When our kids were small, one of the books we used to read to them at bedtime was called There's a Monster Under My Bed. The story is told from the vantage point of a little boy named Simon, who is afraid that, as the title suggests, there's a monster under his bed. Simon's parents have just tucked him in, kissed him goodnight, and shut the door, leaving him all alone in the dark and quiet of his bedroom. The long shadows of the moonlight creep into, in through the curtains, making odd shapes on the bedroom wall. And with each passing moment, Simon's vivid imagination fuels his growing fear and anxiety. And Simon asks himself, what if my foot slips over the edge of the bed while I'm asleep? He'll bite it off. That's what I think I'll lie in the middle of the bed and not move and stay awake all night. Simon's anxiety continues to build, and it's not long before he convinces himself that not only is there one monster under the bed, but probably even two or three or more monsters waiting under there to grab him. Now, I think we can all relate to the feelings of fear and anxiety when we find ourselves in situations that are threatening or uncertain, regardless of how young or old we are. We've been under lockdown restrictions here in Geneva for seven Sundays now as a result of this pandemic. Metaphorically speaking, the COVID-19 virus is our monster under the bed. Our lives have been upended and we worry about when things will ever be normal again. We worry about our families, our communities, and those who are suffering. We grieve with those who have lost loved ones. We worry about jobs that are lost, economies that are faltering, and uncertainties about the future. Needless to say, fear and anxiety have been consuming a lot of our emotional energies in these past couple of months. When we feel like we're in danger, fear triggers a series of biological changes in the body that help us respond in one of two ways. Either we react to or we retreat from the danger. It's called the fight or flight response. And neuroscientists tell us that this stress response begins deep in the brain within the amygdala, which sends signals to the hypothalamus, which in turn stimulates the nervous system. The heart rate increases, breathing becomes shallow and quick, brain chemicals like adrenaline and cortisol are released into the bloodstream, blood flow gets diverted to the large muscles of the body, mostly the arms and the legs. Our vision and hearing become more attuned so that your focus narrows to pay attention just to that threat in that moment. And when the imminent danger has passed, the body gradually reverts back to its normal state. But anxiety has a tendency to linger, and it has similar effects on the body to maybe a lesser degree and more prolonged over time. Fear and anxiety are indeed very powerful emotions. Is it any wonder that we're feeling worn down these days? And I tell you, it doesn't take any imagination for us to relate to the fear and the anxiety that the disciples must have been experiencing in today's gospel lesson, does it? It's the evening on the day of Jesus' resurrection, and as John tells us, the disciples are in the upper room, huddled in fear behind a locked door. And sure, by all accounts, their fear is justified. 
Over the course of the previous three days, the disciples had witnessed the horror and the inhumanity of Jesus' suffering. They had watched in devastation as Jesus hung from the cross, bleeding and dying, and later was taken down and laid in the tomb. It would only be a matter of time, perhaps, before the Jewish authorities who plotted and carried out Jesus' death could be after them as well. So with the adrenaline coursing through their veins, their hearts pounding out of their chest, fear had driven the disciples to flee repeatedly over these past few days. And now they're seeking refuge in the one place where they feel the safest, in that room where they had last gathered, when Jesus lovingly had washed their feet and they shared together in the holy meal. Earlier in the day, Mary Magdalene had come in rushing, announcing that she had seen the risen Christ. I have seen the Lord, she proclaimed. But with all the grief, the confusion, and the wonder of, that, of what had taken place, it was a lot for them to take in. And so they stayed huddled in that room behind that locked door in fear. But the disciples soon learned that neither their fears nor that locked door can keep the risen Christ out of that upper room or out of their lives. There is no dramatic fanfare, no angelic choir singing the hallelujah chorus when it happens. Jesus enters in gently. He stands among them and says, peace be with you. He shows them the scars and the wounds in his hands and his side and he reassures them that he has indeed risen. And do you notice that Jesus does not scold his friends for their lack of trust? He does not shame them for denying him and running away. He does not fuss at them for their fear and slowness to understand. Jesus comes and speaks peace into their fear. And then a second time, Jesus tells them, peace be with you. He breathes the Holy Spirit on them, and at once, the fear that had confined and consumed them no longer has power. Now we don't know why Thomas isn't with the others on that night. What we do know is that when Thomas returns, the others are bursting at the seams with excitement to tell him that they had seen the risen Christ for themselves. He indeed had risen from the dead. And Thomas's response is very straightforward. Unless he can see for himself the marks and the wounds, he cannot believe. Now we know that Thomas has been criticized for his skepticism over the centuries. He's been cast as doubting Thomas, suggesting that his faith was inferior to that of the others. But honestly, I think he gets a bad rap. Because just like the others, Thomas had witnessed the horror of the past three days. And there was no doubt that his friend, Jesus, was dead. And Thomas was a pragmatist. He was a realist. According to Barbara Brown Taylor, one of my favorite preachers, Thomas was a brave, literal-minded maverick who could be counted on to do the right thing, but only after he was convinced it was the right thing. He simply needed the same reassurance that the other disciples had just received. So a week later, Jesus appears to the disciples again, and this time Thomas is with them. And Jesus meets Thomas where he is, in his skepticism and his doubt and his grief. Again, no criticism, no judgment, 
just love. Once again, Jesus speaks peace into that moment. And immediately Thomas's fear and doubt are transformed into awe and a powerful testimony of total trust in Christ, my Lord and my God. You know, this is a true turning point. From this moment on, everything changes for Thomas and the other disciples. Christ speaks peace into their fear, and it transforms them into, from being a frightened, huddled bunch to becoming courageous and inspired witnesses to the good news of Christ's resurrection. And it's on their shoulders that the Christian church stands now and always. The message of Easter and Christ's resurrection is the foundation of our faith. It affirms that death does not have the final word and that truth and goodness and love are the final realities in God's hands. I like the way that theologian N.T. Wright says it. He says the resurrection is a new beginning. It is a seed being sown, a tune being composed, which everyone now gets to sing. Many of the writings of early church theologians, including Augustine, Gregory of Nyssa, and John Chrysostom, asserted that by raising Jesus from the dead, God had played a practical joke on the devil. They called it Rhesus Pascalis, or the Easter laugh. It was their way of proclaiming that God is the one having the last laugh over death and evil. And in the spirit of this Easter laugh, having included in your bulletin a portrait titled The Risen Christ by the Sea, which a colleague introduced to me many years ago, and I'm thankful to the folks at the Joyful Noise Letter who very generously have allowed me permission to share it this morning. Jesus is shown at the Sea of Tiberias, which is another uh, place of his post-resurrection appearances, and his face is full of joy and hope as light is shining in the darkness of, of the time. And I personally find this image a joy-filled, in this image, a joy-filled Christ who is very down-to-earth and approachable. It has inspired me many times over the years, especially during times of deep struggle, for, to reimagine Christ's loving presence with us and the hope that comes from resurrection. Perhaps it'll inspire you as well. Jesus met the disciples where they were, in their own grief and their confusion. And Jesus meets us right where we are as well. It's okay to acknowledge that we may be struggling to feel the full-on joy and celebration that comes with Easter and resurrection. How many times have we remarked that this is an unprecedented time that we're in because of this pandemic, and it surely is. Maybe we can draw comfort and solidarity from the experiences of Christian brothers and sisters who have endured in other times of historic crises that were similarly unprecedented. Times of persecution and plagues, world wars, 9-11, tsunamis, disasters. The good news of Easter was proclaimed through all of those times. And the good news of Easter stands true today. And that is cause for celebration. Jesus' words of peace speak into our fears, and today invites us to our own turning point that transforms our fear into Easter joy. 
Now on Friday, Swiss officials announced guidelines for a gradual lifting of our lockdown, and we can give thanks that our confinement has proven to be beneficial in slowing the progress of the virus so far. Yet we have a long way to go, and the concerns are far from over. So in what ways can we allow Christ's peace to guide us to a future with hope, even though that future may still seem uncertain? How can we come through this time with a deeper understanding of God's loving presence with us? I was thinking back to late, last, late in February when many of us in the church family were embarking on a Lenten book study. Boy, Ash Wednesday seems like such a long time ago, doesn't it? <laughs> we gathered in groups to discuss the book Holy Solitude, and little did any of us know when we started it how a study on the Christian practice of solitude could speak to us in our home confinement. We got a lot more than we bargained for when we started. Holy solitude is not about escape. It's about intentionally entering into a deeper encounter with God, with our authentic self, set apart from the distractions of the world around us or the distortions of our own minds. The suggestion is that in prayer, we rest in the fullness of God's love, and that love transforms us, enabling us to then focus ourselves onto the needs of the world outside of us. So prayer becomes this cycle, this relationship, where we enter inward deeply. We experience and are reinforced by the love of God, and that love sends us outward to care for the love of the world, to the needs of the world. And that love draws us deeper inward, and that inward prayer brings us further outward, and the cycle continues. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all become monastics in our confinement, though if that brings you joy, then do so and be blessed. But I do believe that we can approach our time of continued confinement as an opportunity for deepened prayer. Because that prayer will help us find ourselves in the loving presence of God. Imagine what a difference it would make if we emerged from this crisis not worn and depleted disciples, but as encouraged and courageous witnesses of God's love. You know, that morning when Mary Magdalene saw the resurrected Christ in the garden on Easter morning, he told her not to hold on to him. Jesus was telling her that their relationship was about to change. And instead of focusing on her own relationship with him, he was asking Mary to see their relationship in terms of her relationship with other people. He was asking her to face outward instead of only toward him. Do not hold on to me, but go to my brothers, Jesus said. Go then and tell the others. Yes, we yearn for the day when things will get back to normal, whatever that will mean. Yet for now and for a little while longer, we will remain inside and with safe physical distance because that is what love demands of us right now. But let us not neglect the opportunity before us to lean into this time of confinement, to seek new ways to connect with Christ whose love transforms our fears into courage. Pay attention to the simple moments of beauty and blessing. Breathe deeply 
lean into those resources of music, of scripture, poetry, beauty, that bring you joy. Take on practices of gratitude. Extend grace and forgiveness to yourself and to those around you. And trust that God is bringing new life in ways that we cannot yet see or imagine. Nada te turbe, nada te espante. Quien a Dios tiene, nada le falta. Solo Dios basta. Let nothing trouble you. Let nothing frighten you. For the one who has God, nothing is lacking. God alone is sufficient. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Amen.